We're going to spend uh, the rest of this month till the beginning of the year on a series on prayer, uh, looking particularly at the Apostle Paul's prayers in the New Testament and looking at uh, how is he praying, what is he praying for, and how does that differ from how we pray and what we pray for. And hopefully this will strengthen our faith and encourage us uh, to pray more biblically. So if you would turn with me to 2 Thessalonians in your New Testament, you uh, get in there to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you'll want to go to the right. If you get as far as Timothy or Hebrews, you want to go back to the left. And you will find the small book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, we'll be reading the first 12 verses, or I'll tell you, we're going to focus on the, the last two in this chapter, verses 11 and 12, but I'm going to read them all to give us the context for what we're talking about this morning. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it speaks to us of so much, that it reminds us of who you are and what you do. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us this morning, that we might learn again from your word who you are and what you do and what difference that makes in each one of our lives and in how we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question uh, this morning. And the question is, what is the most urgent need of the church? If you had to pick one thing, what would you say 
I think there's lots of possible uh, different responses to that question. What's the most urgent need of the church? Some in the church would say that uh, what we really need is purity, particularly in sexual and reproductive matters. Certainly the facts are alarming. Uh, a few years ago, Christianity Today published the results of a poll showing that in several church singles groups, groups of unmarried and divorced people, usually between the ages of 20 and 40, more than 90% of both men and women had engaged in affairs. Others locate the most urgent problem of the church less in personal morality than in larger policy issues connected with reproduction. Christian outrage at the continued tolerance of abortion on demand is steady. Many see this issue as the most urgent challenge before the contemporary church. And God knows we need purity in sexual and reproductive matters. But let's be frank. Some societies experience high degrees of sexual purity without much knowledge of God. Many Muslim nations, for instance, exhibit a far higher degree of sexual purity and a far lower abortion rate than any Western nation. Surely this cannot be our greatest need. Others say the church's most urgent need is a combination of integrity and generosity in the financial arena. It might be embarrassing to discover how many people who hear this today have at some time cheated on their taxes. There was a time uh, when, a business, when what a business person promised was as binding as a written contract, but no longer. Large-scale corruption has rocked financial houses whose names once symbolized utter reliability. In some measure, greed characterizes every culture in our fallen world. But the raw worship of mammon has become so bold, so outrageous, so pervasive in the Western world during the last 25 years that many of us and many people we know are willing to do almost anything, including sacrificing their children, provided we can buy more. So what we need then is integrity coupled with generosity, a new freedom from this miserable enslavement to wealth, an enslavement that's corroding our resolve and corrupting our obedience. And God knows we need to be released from rampant materialism. But again, we have to recognize there are societies far less devoted to the creed of more than we are, but whose people do not know God. So how can this be our greatest need? Well, then someone might say what we need in this hour of spiritual decline is more evangelism and church planning. World population figures are escalating, and missions can no longer be thought of something that takes place over there. Many Western nations are growing in ethnic diversity. The country in the world that has the most Polish people is Poland. The second largest Polish country in the world is the United States. The second largest Indian country in the world is the United States. The second largest Chinese country in the world is the United States. And that holds true for 80% of all the countries in the world. World-class cities continue to draw in the bulk of the world's population. 
But in Western countries, and in America in particular, the church at its strength, however good or bad that is, is primarily rural and suburban, not urban. We live in greater Washington, D.C. area. We have one church in downtown D.C. All the rest are suburban and rural in our presbytery, and that's 32 churches. And those numbers don't change pretty much place to place. The only major city that we've put a significant imprints on are Atlanta, Philadelphia, and New York in all of the United States. And so there's some bright spots, but surely evangelicalism is not proving to be tremendously effective in obeying the Lord's mandate to evangelism. And, uh, so yes, we need more and better evangelism. Because many people today think that Christianity is just something to add to their already busy lives. It's not something that controls and constrains and shapes their lives and their goals. And the sad truth is that much of American Christianity is returning to basic paganism. An ordinary pagan can be ever so religious without any necessary entanglement in ethics or holiness or self-sacrifice or integrity. And the evangelism that's dominated much of the Western world just doesn't seem powerful enough to address this decline. Perhaps what then we most urgently need is disciplined biblical thinking. We need more Bible schools and colleges and seminaries, more theologians, more lay training, more expository preaching. How else are we going to train a whole generation of Christians to think God's thoughts after him other than teaching them to think through Scripture and to learn from Scripture? And I am scarcely in a position to criticize expository preaching and theology since I've given my life to that ministry. And yet I'd be uh, among the first to acknowledge that there are preachers and professors who devote thousands of hours to the diligent study of Scripture and yet somehow display an extraordinarily shallow knowledge of God. There isn't enough time to list all the other urgent needs. Some would say there's a desperate need for real vital corporate worship, and others would focus on trends in our nation and the need to become involved in politics and public policy. And all of these things are important. And I wouldn't want anything I've said to be taken as a criticism of evangelism or worship or a diminishing of the importance of purity and integrity or a carelessness about disciplined Bible study. But there's a sense in which all of these urgent needs are just symptoms of a far more serious problem. And I think the one thing we most urgently need in the church is a deeper knowledge of God. We just need to know God better. When it comes to knowing God, we're a culture of fairly small spiritual stature. So much of our religion, American Christianity, is packaged to address our felt needs, uniformly anchored in our pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. And God simply becomes this great being who meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think little of what he's like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. 
We're not captured by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words uh, capture too little of our imagination, too little of our conversations, too little of our priorities. And in a biblical view of things, a deeper knowledge of God brings with it massive improvement in all those other areas I mentioned. Purity, integrity, uh, evangelistic effectiveness, better study of scripture, improved worship, and so on and so forth. But if we seek those things without passionately desiring a deeper knowledge of God, we're putting ourselves in the position of selfishly running after God's blessings without running after him. And that's become the great condemnation of the church in the West. We're running after God's blessings without running after him. And so this sermon series addresses only one small, vital part of that challenge. One of the foundational steps in knowing God, one of the basic demonstrations that we, in fact, do know God, is prayer. Spiritual, persistent, biblically-minded prayer. Writing a century and a half ago, Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. And we have ignored that wisdom. We've learned to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves in the media, develop evangelistic strategies, administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. Where is our delight in praying? Where is our sense that we're meeting with the living God, that we're doing business with God, that we're interceding before the throne of grace? To many of us, those questions just sound foreign. So what shall we do? I mean, haven't many of us tried at one point or another to improve our praying, to improve our prayer life, and we floundered at it so badly we just got more discouraged than we were before? Isn't it true that by and large we're better at organizing than agonizing. We're better at administrating than interceding. We're better at fellowship than at fasting. We're better at entertainment than at worship. And we're better at theology than we are at the adoration of God. And better, God help us, at preaching than we are at praying. What's wrong? Isn't this sad state of affairs somehow a measure of our knowledge of God? J.I. Packer wrote and asked, do you agree with this? He says, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as an important a question as we can ever face. I mean, I think if I asked you what are the top 10 questions in the world, how we pray probably wouldn't make the list for most of us. Packer, one of the premier theologians in our lifetime, says it should be number one. And I doubt if there's a Christian anywhere that hasn't found it difficult to pray sometimes. I mean, that should not be either surprising or depressing. You know, we're still pilgrims with a lot to learn, so it's not surprising. It's not depressing because struggling with, with this is part of how we learn. 
But what is surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. It's surprising because it's out of step with how the Bible portrays the Christian life. It's depressing because frequently it coexists with so much uh, abundant Christian activity. I mean, we do lots of Christian stuff. As long as we don't have to pray about it. And I wish I could say this didn't apply to me. But the truth is that I'm part of what I'm condemning, what I'm critiquing. If we're going to make any headway in reforming our personal and corporate prayer, we have to begin by listening to Scripture and seeking God's help and understanding how to apply that Scripture to our lives and to our church. And so the aim of this series on prayer is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today and to find direction to improve our praying, both for God's glory and for our own good. And that's what Paul's writing about here. So let's attend to God's word here in 2 Thessalonians. Turn with me, and we start by seeing the reason for Paul's prayer. Verses 1 through 10, the reason for Paul's prayer. We're going to focus on 11 and 12 today. Let me say one thing before I go on. Somebody asked me why I don't always read this right out of my Bible. And it's because when I print it on paper, I can make the print a whole lot bigger. Uh, it's not anything to do. It's just, you know, you're trying to read from here and big print helps. So uh, that's the only reason. Um, there's those of, among you who have better eyes than I do, and I encourage you to read uh, from your Bibles. Uh, I do normally, but when I preach, I need it big. So that's why I have all these pages up here. So it's print for people with bad eyes. The, uh, although I did notice today uh, when somebody, I forget what it was, asked you to look. There's a tremendous amount of people pulling glasses out of their pockets and pocketbooks. And I thought this is a sure sign we're getting older. The reading glasses are multiplying dramatically among us. Um, the, uh, anyways, the reason for Paul's prayer. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul starts out in verse 11 by saying, to this end, we always pray for you. So the question is, to this end, to what end? Well, everything that Paul has said so far. In other words, verses 1 through 10 tell us what Paul's talking about when he starts to describe his prayers. He says, to this end. So you have to ask, to what end? Everything he's written up to then. And the first thing, I'm just going to look at a few of these verses, not all of them, because a lot of them deal with the second coming, and that's not the focus today, although it's all great stuff. So I've just picked out a few. Look at verse 3. And Paul first mentions thanksgiving. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, we're all familiar with giving thanks, but what do we commonly give thanks for? We say grace at meals. You know, thank God for our food. We give thanks when we receive uh, material blessings, when the mortgage we've applied for comes through, uh, when we first turn on the ignition in a car that we've just purchased. We may sigh a prayer of uh, very nervous thanks after a near miss on the highway. We say a prayer of uh, sincere thanks when we recover from serious illness. 
And we may actually offer a brief thanksgiving when we hear uh, that someone we know has recently converted. But by and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-being and comfort. The unvarnished truth is that what, uh, what we most often give thanks for betrays what we value most. Whatever you thank God for the most betrays what you value most. And if a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it's because we highly value material prosperity. And that's why when we first turn to Paul's thanksgivings, they're kind of startling. They seem sort of alien. They don't focus on what many of us focus on. (coughs) Paul gives thanks for signs of grace among Christians, particularly among those here in Thessalonica. Look at what he gives thanks for. First, he gives thanks that their faith is growing. Since he mentions their growing faith, he can't be referring to their initial conversion, but to their increasing reliance upon the Lord. And second, he gives thanks that their love is increasing. Their love for one another is growing. It can only be because they're Jesus' disciples. Didn't Jesus himself say in John 13 that love is the distinguishing mark of his disciples. And so when Christians grow in their love for each other for no other reason that they're loved by Jesus and love him in return, then that growing love is a sign of grace in their lives. So first he thanks them for their faith and then he thanks them for their love. Look at the third thing he thanks them for. He gives thanks that they're persevering under trial. I learned about that from Jonah yesterday. What does it mean to persevere under trial? Nobody's put a picture of my house on the front page of the paper and said, go get this guy. I don't know what I'd do. I don't know how I would act. I don't know how Jonah dealt with that. Go out in the morning, bathrobe, cup of coffee, get the morning paper, walking halfway up the driveway, and there's... Your picture. Get this guy. I think that might sort of rock me back on my heels a little bit. But this is what he thanks him for. They're persevering under trial. Look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Because the faith and love of the Thessalonians had increased, they're spiritually strong enough to persevere under the trials they have to endure. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, have you noticed how powerfully the grace of God is working in the lives of these Thessalonian believers? The way they withstand the pressures of persecution is truly remarkable. It's a compelling testimony to the grace of God. Fortified by their growing faith and their increasing love, they just press on and on and on. What a great example. What an encouragement to the rest of us. And if we're to develop prayers like Paul's, we have to look for signs of grace in the lives of other Christians and then thank God for them. 
For what do we, have we thanked God uh, for recently? Have we gone over a list of people in the church and quietly thanked God for signs of grace in their lives? Almost every month I, I send out an email to the congregation soliciting prayer requests. I normally hear from about 25% of you. And I compile all those prayer requests and uh, print them out for the elders and sort of dump them all into one document, print it out, and then when we get together and pray, we pray for for everyone who's written in. Uh, We also have a list of all the families in the church, and so we pray for everyone. But specific requests we get. And I also ask in that email if you have any items of praise and thanksgiving that you want to include. And normally I get about a dozen prayer requests for every item of praise. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but it does seem that we're asking God for stuff way more than we're thanking him for what he's already done for us. We're asking God for stuff way more than we're thanking him for what he's already done. Having thanked God for the Thessalonians, Paul moves on to thank God for the hope that he gives to them and to us. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, They, referring to those who don't know God, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Verse 10, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you is believed. When you go through the ordination process, you have to write a theology paper. Rich probably remembers that, and Dave will get to experience it soon. My theology paper was on 2 Thessalonians 1. And I had to write this paper about why is this passage not very well commented on and preached on in the West, and yet why is this one of the most popular passages that's commented on and preached on in other countries? Because it's about Jesus coming back. When you live in a poverty-stricken place or a persecuted place, when they're putting your picture on the front page of the paper, you want to pray for hope for that day uh, to be, that Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. That's right at the top of your prayer list because you're already living in hell. And so people who are persecuted and oppressed and poverty-stricken They love these passages. And a lot of us think we're already living in heaven. So these passages don't mean so much. I mean, this is an amazing sentence. Look at verse 10 again. There's a real sense of expectancy that just is missing in the evangelical West. We're losing our anticipation of the Lord's return. The anticipation that Paul shows is basic to his thought and to his prayers. And we won't deny these truths. They're central truths, but they just have no power for us. The prospect of the Lord's return in glory, the anticipation of the end of the world as we know it, 
the confidence that there's going to be a final and irrevocable division between the just and the unjust. These have become merely parts of our creed instead of life-transforming realities. Paul's emphasis simply mock so much of our own emphasis. In our pragmatic, materialistic society where each of us seeks comfort and fulfillment and respect, it's really hard to follow a despised, crucified Messiah unless we fix our eyes on the end. If we don't aim for the new heaven and the new earth, many of our values and decisions in this world become short-sighted and fundamentally wrong-headed. Put the matter bluntly, can biblical spirituality survive where Christians aren't oriented to the world to come? And can we expect to pray biblically unless we're oriented to the world to come? Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. The end that Paul keeps in mind is gratitude for signs of grace among the people whom he prays for and simple confidence in the prospect of God's vindication of his people when Jesus returns. That's what Paul has in mind when he sets himself to pray for the Thessalonians. I see faith and love and perseverance, and those are great things. And what's even better is Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. I'm probably more guilty than anyone here because I'm up front more than anyone here. We just don't talk like that very often. But it seems like Paul does, and he doesn't hesitate to. And so let's see, what does he pray for? Let's take a look. Verse 11, the request of Paul's prayer. Verse 11 says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. We're going to focus on that phrase. It says, And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. But I want to focus on that phrase, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. This calling of which excuse me, of which Christians must count, or which God must count Christians worthy, demands some explanation. We don't talk like this. We're not sure what that means. In Paul's writing, the calling of God is always effective. Those who are called by God are truly saved. Nowhere is this clearer than Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And used in this way, to be called by God means to be saved, to belong to God, to be accepted as one of his. But Paul never thinks that we're called by God because we deserve it. Not to worry, I have another one. Paul's not praying here that Thessalonians might become worthy enough to be called. These people are already believers. They've already been called. And now Paul prays they might live up to that calling. Specifically, Paul prays that God himself might count them worthy of his calling. This means these believers must grow in all those things that please God so that he actually is pleased with them. 
and finally judges them to be living up to the calling that they've received. In short, they are uh, to, as if Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, they are to walk in, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I think it's safe to say that Paul wants us to be worthy of this calling. Certainly none of us were worthy when we received it, but now Paul wants us to become what we were not. And he prays to that end. He prays that Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a Christian, of all that it means to be a child of the living God, of all that it means to be worthy of the love that brought Jesus to the cross. But judging by this example of Paul's praying, it should be clear that our chief concern in prayer must not be that we might become successful, wealthy, popular, healthy, brilliant, triumphant, happy, or beautiful. Not all of us worry about the beautiful part. Still less does Paul encourage us to pray that all our problems will go away. Paul's prayer is constrained by the signs of grace for which he's already thanked God, and he prays with eternity in view. He knows we're going to have to give an account for what we've done. And on that last day, God will ask, in effect, what have you done with the salvation I bestowed on you? How have you responded to the way I graciously called you to myself? Have you begun to live up to that calling? And this is one of the themes that Paul returns to again and again and again. We're to grow up into Christian maturity. In this strange paradox, Paul is constantly telling people, in effect, to become what you are. That is, since we already are children of God because of his grace to us in Christ, we must now become all that such children should be. God has called us. We have to live up to that calling. He says, be what you are. However, it should be obvious, we're not strong enough, we're not disciplined enough to take these steps by ourselves. And that's why Paul prays as he does. If a holy God is going to count us worthy of his calling, we have to ask him for help. And that's why Paul's praying. He's not simply asking the Thessalonians to try harder. He's praying for them to the end that God will count them worthy of his calling. Such a prayer is tantamount to asking God that he will so work in their lives, so make them worthy that ultimately he will count them worthy. And so this text asks us, that doesn't go well, this text asks us, remind me not to put text and ask together again. We're asked, when was the last time you prayed this sort of prayer for each other or for your family or for your church or for your children or even for yourself? I mean, we spend far more time and energy praying, uh, to use our children as an example, praying that they'll pass their exams or they'll get a good job or find a Christian spouse or be happy or not stray too far than we do praying that they may live lives worthy of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm just as guilty as you are. I mean, hopefully that's as convicting to you as it is to me. And Paul goes on and tells you why he prays this way. He makes it clear to us what is the goal of his prayer. Look at the beginning of verse 12. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That's the goal of Paul's prayer. For Paul is concerned that Christians might be counted worthy of his calling. 
his desire that God might fulfill their good, faith-prompted purposes are not ultimate ends. They're valued. They're to be desired. They're things to be prayed for. But the ultimate end of growing spiritually for believers is that the Lord Jesus be glorified. The Christian's whole desire, best and highest, is that Christ be praised. And it's always a wretched corruption of our goals when we want to win glory for ourselves instead of for him. You know, we, we don't say that. We might not even consciously think that. But how many times when we bring a meal, teach a class, serve as an usher, preach a sermon even, visit the sick, run a youth group, attend a prayer meeting, when we do any of those things with the secret desire that we might be praised for our godliness and for our service. I would be glad to help you because then you will think I'm a godly person and you'll like me. And when we do that, we are corrupting the salvation that we enjoy. Lying at the heart of sin is this desire to be central in our own lives, which is what it uh, is to be like God. We want to be central. And so if we take on some Christian service and we think of that as a vehicle that will make us central, then we've paganized that Christian service. And our pilgrimage as Christians doesn't have to be very far advanced before we can recognize that even our best service, our highest zeal, is regularly laced with large doses of self-interest. And Paul recognizes this problem and he articulates the proper goal in his prayer. We pray this, he writes, not that you may be thought remarkable Christians or that you may gain a reputation for perseverance and spirituality and power throughout the Roman Empire, but so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That's what he says. So the first part of his prayer then is the glorification of the Lord Jesus. But look at the last part of the verse. It's a little startling. We pray this, so the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and then he tacks on, and you in him. Why did he have to go and do that? What's that mean? It's a little strange. I mean, after making the glorification of Jesus absolutely pivotal, is Paul now softening a little bit, deciding that we can legitimately pursue a little praise for ourselves? I don't think it's as simple or as crass as that. In, in Romans 8.30, which we read earlier, Paul insists that all whom God calls and justifies, all who are genuinely saved, will one day be glorified. That means one day, amen, will be made perfect. One day we'll have resurrection bodies. I don't know what they look like, but I'm pretty sure it's not like this. And you're surely praying it's not like this. Of course, I do think you'll all be shorter. <laughs> I mean, one day we'll live in the splendor of the new heavens and the new earth. And even now, he insists, look at 2 Corinthians 3, he says, 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And our final glorification will see us without spot or blemish, with all sin and decay purged away. But even now, Christians are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so that final transformation, as wonderful as it is, is prefaced by a whole series of smaller transformations as we become increasingly conformed to the image and to the likeness of Christ. So that final transformation is not reversing what we did in our lives, but completing it. And when we glorify God, we're not giving him uh, something substantial that he wouldn't otherwise have. We're simply ascribing to him what he is and what is his. But when we're glorified in the sense here, we're being made more like him. We're being empowered to exhibit characteristics we wouldn't otherwise have. And while we all uh, would think that being made more like Jesus is a good thing, exactly how is that supposed to happen? Well, Paul tells us here at the end of verse 12, he gives us the basis for Paul's prayer, the basis for Paul's prayer. He ends with this phrase, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul doesn't want to end his prayer by leaving the Thessalonian Christians with the impression that what he's really praying for is they're simply going to need to try harder. He's going to have to do more stuff, work more. And we must be constantly reminded of the fact that just as we're saved by grace, we're sanctified by grace, and we're glorified by grace. And that should be obvious, as seen in the fact that Paul here is approaching God with petitions. He's asking God to do something, and he's asking God to perform these things. Shows he's deeply aware that God's grace must be at work if these petitions are going to be answered at all. I mean, we become fruitful by grace. We persevere by grace. We mature by grace. We grow to love one another more and more by grace, and we cherish a deepening knowledge of God by grace. And therefore, Paul reminds his readers at the end of his prayer that everything he's asked for is available only on the basis of grace. This prayer of the apostles is not made up of isolated requests that allow us to uh, think of ourselves as basically independent and on the right track. Occasionally in need of a little input from the deity, a little blessing called down by an appropriately formulated prayer. His prayer is so much bigger and broader than that. He remembers the grace that we've received in the past, and he thinks through the direction of our lives, our ultimate home, and the new heavens and the new earth, envisions the final vindication of the saints at the return of Christ, and grasps what kind of lives we should be living in light of all that. And best of all, he remembers, if we're going to move in that direction, we have to have the grace of God at every point in our lives, answering our prayers, so that those prayers themselves being nothing less than the progressive transformation of the people of God, and all for the glory of the Lord Jesus. That's what has to shape our prayers. So the things that most concern us in prayer are those things that concern the heart of God. Now I come to the end of all that. When I first wrote this, that's where it ended. But then I said, so what? I mean, consider this biblical teaching on prayer. 
more than anything else, I would think, if I uh, went back and looked at all the prayer requests people have given me over the years. And it'll be 12 years in January, so that's a lot of prayer requests. More than anything else, our prayers focus on sickness and healing. And praying for those things is neither bad nor wrong. The Bible tells us to pray for those things. The problem comes when that pretty much describes our prayers. You know, and that's the only thing we pray about. You know, many of our prayer requests sound a lot like a nursing report during a shift change at the hospital. You know, the colon cancer in room 103 with uncertain prognosis. The lady in room 110 with a gallbladder that's not yielding to treatment. The silver nails broken arm, leg, nose, foot. Fill in the blank. <laughs> that's mending well. The heart patient going into surgery on Tuesday under Dr. Trailer's skilled hands. It's our amateur cardiologist. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised the visitors to our church get the impression that God's chiefly interested in perking up our health. They might also get the impression that God isn't very good at it. I mean, the prayer list progressively fills up with illnesses. And deep down, we know every person here will die sooner or later, usually from progressively worsening health. Now again, praying about those things is neither bad nor wrong. The problem comes when that's all that we pray about. And it's clear the vast majority of prayers in the Bible focus on other things. Let me categorize briefly three emphasis of biblical prayer. This is what I want to leave you with. And I've listed them there in your outline. Sometimes we ask God to change our circumstances. That's when we pray for the sick and we pray for healing and give us daily bread and protect us from suffering and harm and make our political leaders just and convert my friends and family and make our work and our ministries prosper. Provide me with a spouse. Quiet this storm. Send us rain. Give us a child. Much of what we pray for is asking God to change our circumstances. But secondly, sometimes we ask God to change us Deepen our faith, increase our love for each other, forgive our sins, make us wise where we tend to be foolish, make us know you better, enable us to sanctify you in our hearts, don't let us dishonor you, give us understanding of scripture, teach us how to encourage others. And then third, sometimes we ask God to change everything by revealing himself more fully in the stage of real life magnifying the degree to which his glory and sovereign rule are obvious. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let your glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Come, Lord Jesus. And when any of these three get detached from the other two, prayer tends to go sour. If you just pray for better circumstances, God becomes the errand boy, usually somewhat disappointing, who exists to give you your shopping list of desires and pleasures. There's no sanctifying purpose. There's no higher glory. And self-centered prayer just becomes gimme, gimme, gimme. If you pray only for personal change, it tends to reveal an obsession 
with moral self-improvement, a self-absorbed spirituality, detached from engagement with other people and the tasks of life that need doing. I mean, where is the longing for Christ's kingdom to right all wrongs, not just to alleviate my sins so I don't feel bad about myself? I need to finish. I'm running out of voice. And if you only pray for the sweeping invasion of the kingdom, then our prayer tends towards irrelevance and generalization, failing to walk out in our lives how the kingdom rights real wrongs, how the kingdom wipes away real tears, (coughs) and how the kingdom removes real sins. And such prayers pursue a God who never touches ground until the last day. We need to learn to pray with this cord of three strands braided together out of our real needs. And we need to teach others to pray the same way. And if we do, they will pray in a noticeably different way, even for the sick. And I pray that through these prayers, God would enable you to know him more. Think about that. And you need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it convicts us where we have so woefully fallen short. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, enable us to grow in faith and increase in love, to demonstrate this kind of maturity by how we pray. We ask that you would do this in us and for us. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.